Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome, everyone, to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, broadcasting out of Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Plaza, and I could not be more excited about my interview today. So when I think of the word confidence, there is a picture that comes to mind, and she is seated right in front of me right now. Aliza Licht is going to tell us everything we need to know about personal branding and how to make sure that the story that's out there is a story you want, right after a word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited to introduce you to my next guest. Aliza Licht is not only a friend of mine, she is an incredible entrepreneur. She is one of the most savvy social media personalities and influencers that I know, and she has a new book coming out. So let me give you a quick bio about this boss, and then we're going to get straight into the story about how Aliza became confident, or if she always was. So Aliza is an award-winning marketer, best-selling author, podcaster, personal branding expert, and the founder of Leave Your Mark, a multimedia brand in consultancy. She advises businesses and mentors individuals on brand building and career development and leverages over two decades of expertise in marketing, communications, and digital strategy in the fashion industry. Aliza, welcome to Claim Your Confidence. Lydia, I am so honored to be here. Thank you for that beautiful intro. And I love you and your book. And I'm so excited for this conversation because it's so important. So if you guys were here right now, you would see Aliza with her beautiful red hair in her bright red lipstick in the chicest black outfit you've ever seen. And when I think of the word confidence, I really do think of you. You stride into rooms. You're always so put together. The red lipstick, the hair, you just, you epitomize confidence in somebody who is comfortable in her own skin. But this is Claim Your Confidence. And I want to start at the very beginning. Where did you come from? Were you always this person? We're going to talk about everything from personal branding to social media influencing, but I want to know about you at the beginning. Well, I love that you start at the beginning because I think the beginning is actually really important to understand where people come from. So I am from Long Island, New York, and I will say that no, I was not always confident. And the reason why I was not always confident is in third grade, I discovered that I had a stutter. And you're like the polar opposite, right? Like world-class auctioneer gets up on any stage. So I found myself shrinking away from like book reports where they would call you up to speak in front of the classroom or when they'd go around the room and say, can you read out loud? And I came home and I'll never forget my mother who always instilled confidence in us Mm -hmm. was like, we need to take you to a therapist. So my entire growing up was battling stuttering. So the idea that I would even be able to like go on Good Morning America now or speak on a stage is crazy considering I literally couldn't do it for most of my young adult life. When you're a child in third grade and someone says to you, we're going to see a therapist for your stutter, were you aware of your stutter at that point? So I remember distinctly, and this is actually my first book, Leave Your Mark, I was sitting around in the classroom in English and I got called on by the teacher. And I had this 
colored wooden beaded bracelet on, like an elastic bracelet. Mm -hmm. And she's like, okay, Lisa, can you read the third paragraph? And I didn't say anything. And I'm pulling on the bracelet, pulling on the bracelet. And then all of a sudden she's like, Aliza, can you read the third paragraph? And I'm still not speaking because I know if I start speaking, I'm going to stutter. But I didn't know why. I didn't know what it was called stuttering. I just knew that I couldn't do it. And all of a sudden I yanked the bracelet really hard and the beads just explode all over the classroom. So now I'm not reading and I'm disruptive. And so I went home and I just knew something was wrong. And I knew that I couldn't be in that situation anymore. Yeah. Gosh, as a mom, that story breaks my heart. It was really sad. It was. I just felt, and she was so, she had zero empathy. She was like angry. Your teacher. Yeah. But your mom, on the other hand, what did she do in that situation? She was a boss. She was. Yeah. And we grew up in Long Island and she would drive me probably twice a week to see a doctor in the city to work on speaking. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was super unconfident about was delivering vowel sounds. And my name starts with A. So if someone said to me, what's your name? I would just stare at you like I couldn't even tell you what my name was because I didn't want to say A. I didn't want to say Aliza. Because you knew it would start to stutter. So I would walk around the city with this therapist and he'd be like, all right, go into this bagel store and order me a coffee or order. So I'd have to like call people to do fake phone calls to like get on the phone and say my name. Like it was sometimes even today, I'll have that fear moment of Mm -hmm. just like, oh my God, they're going to call me next. That anticipation of being called on is still a trigger. It's amazing because you're so eloquent and poised. And I saw that Good Morning America episode, which I would recommend you all go back and just look. In terms of media training, it was an A+. Honestly, I saw it as an objective observer and thought you did a fabulous job. So it's amazing to me to think that that is a place that you started. And in many ways, I wonder in your confidence journey, if that didn't show you that working hard at something over time and proving that you can get through it was a huge life lesson for you, even at that early age. Yeah, I think it was. And I think the other thing really goes back to parenting, right? So my mother and my father both encouraged my sister and I to have a voice. Mm -hmm. So we were able to say when we didn't agree, we were able to say like, well, I don't want to do that because. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that makes for a very loud family. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but in general, we were really encouraged to speak up, which then really stayed with me my whole life. So even as like a 22-year-old assistant in fashion, if I was in the elevator with the CEO, like I would have a full conversation because in my mind, we're the same. Yeah, yeah. And it's a mindset. Yeah. My dad has always said, and I wrote a chapter in my first book, that everyone puts on their boots the same way. True. Same idea, right? Exactly. And my dad, whenever we'd be like, I can't believe you spoke to that person. I can't believe you said that. My dad would say, whatever. Everybody gets up and puts their boots on the same way in the morning. You put a shoe on, left foot, then He's the right, right foot. And He's he right. is. Yes. And it does serve you well. And I think it also takes down that pressure where you start thinking that people are above you or below you. And you realize that that's actually not a real thing in life. You should treat people with respect at all levels, wherever they are over Absolutely. their life and career. So you progressed from third grade, obviously. You've gone to your therapist in the city. You end up in high school. And then where do you go to college? So I ended up getting a full scholarship to the University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to be a plastic surgeon. Oh, that was unexpected. Yeah. So I decided to major in neurobiology and physiology. So the juxtaposition of me is growing up, 
with every single magazine spread from Vogue, LW, wallpapered in my room, mm-hmm. like to the point that I'm like, I'm going to submit my room. Remember back in the day, we would submit our rooms to like 17 magazine <laughs> to be featured. No, but okay. Okay. Well, I'm older than you probably. <laughs> no. So um, I loved fashion, but I didn't know it was a job. I didn't know that you could work at a fashion magazine. So I was like, I'm going to be a plastic surgeon. And was it the University of Maryland that turned you on to fashion? I mean, where did no. this all come so from? So fashion was... I literally bought Arthur L. Gort's model's manual like in high school. I followed every single fashion trend. I read every single issue of Vogue and Bazaar. And I just thought it was just an interest. In Maryland, my junior year, I did a really hideous internship at a hospital. Mm. And this is the joke. I was like, I cannot wear a mask all day. Oh, <laughs> little did you know. <laughs> With little red did you lipstick know. does With not lipstick. work well. Wait, were you already wearing red lipstick at this point in your life? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I went to high school and college. There was a woman in high school and a woman in college, and both of them wore red lipstick. And I've never forgotten them. And even a woman at Christie's named Dana, who I remember always wearing red lipstick. It is such an incredible, in my opinion, vote of confidence in yourself to be able to pull off red lipstick. It's also very difficult because I feel like it smears all the time. So it's just impressive across the board. Well, I had different shades back then probably, but I will say that I wear it because I think it's caffeine for the face. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. You always look great as I Thank spoke you. Well, about it, before. You know, it's, otherwise I look dead. So that's, <laughs> that's the choice. <laughs> so you're the University of Maryland. When do you realize that fashion can be a job? I remember it distinctly because I finished this internship and I was like, okay, I need to tell my parents I cannot do this. Mm-hmm. And I did. And my dad was really cool about it. And my mom was very much like, well, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And I was sitting around my apartment and I had brought Arthur Elgort's model's manual to college with me that I bought in high school. I'm flipping through the pages and I'm like, oh my God, maybe I should work at a fashion magazine. Mm-hmm. Now it's senior year at this point, And I'm like, I'm going to get an internship at a magazine in Washington, which was Washingtonian Magazine. I ended up getting it in ad sales. And I'll never forget, I hated ad sales. But what I did was I made sure to understand what everyone else did. So after I was done with my cold pitches, which by the way, going back to therapy, calling people cold, like even to do that in an internship was like a real win for me. And I'll never forget My last day, I said to my supervisor, last words of wisdom, I want to work in the magazine industry, but I want to work in editorial. Where should I apply? And Mm -hmm. he's like, well, you should apply to Condé Nast or Hearst. And I was like, what is that? I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. And then I ended up applying to Harper's Bazaar and I started my career in fashion as an intern in the fashion closet at Harper's Bazaar. So tell us all what it was like to be an intern in those days in the fashion world, because I do think it's so fun having grown up in New York City. You know, I worked at Christie's for over two decades and outside looking in, everyone is like, you have the most glamorous job in the world. But my friends who were not in auction or art all worked in fashion. So I know that that's not the case. <laughs> give us give us a, just a day in the life of an intern in the fashion world. Well, It wasn't Vogue, right? So it was not Devil Wears Prada in that sense. Everyone was very kind. Mm -hmm. And the job entailed me organizing the shoes in color order and picking the dust bunnies out of them. (laughs) Yeah. That was the job. And then packing and unpacking samples. I love it. And I loved every minute of it. I know. And I feel like that's what I love so much about this podcast is when I sit across from women who are like, no, my job was to polished furniture, and I couldn't have loved it more. Yeah. I mean, you're just so happy to be there. And yeah. Liz Tilbaris, the great late Liz Tilbaris, was the editor-in-chief back then. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, she had done this, the most amazing covers with Patrick Demarchelier and Princess Diana. And you're part of like legacy, mm-hmm. a legacy team. And it was the heyday of fashion. It was the 90s. Yeah. Print mattered. And we know because the 90s are back. So we can see all of the mistakes we made and all of the good things yeah. as well, walking around the streets of New York any day. So how long were you at Harper's Bazaar? I was an intern there for six months full time with one day a week at New York Magazine because Sasha Charnin Morrison stepmother, Jade Hobson Charnin, was the fashion director at New York Magazine. And she was like, you're doing such a good job here, but do you want like another line on your resume? And I was like, yes, please. (laughs) Richard Sinnott, who was the accessories director back then at Harper's, got me my first job at Mary Claire in the accessories department where I was back picking dust bunnies out of shoes and now (laughs) not an intern anymore. This was just a full-time job where you were picking dust bunnies out of shoes. Full-time job, yes. But but proud. Getting paid Getting paid. Getting paid, yep. Getting paid. And what was it that you loved so much about fashion? Like what kept you in it time after time? You loved the magic of it, obviously. Was it magazines or was it the fashion as as well? It was definitely both. Mm. And I think, you know, On Brand actually starts off with this because... These experiences were really the first examples of my understanding of how influence is created. Mm -hmm. It's like those editors, what they told you you needed to wear next season, back then you were buying what they told you. Yep. How those decisions got made, the behind the scenes of like what's happening behind the curtain was fascinating to me. How many years were you there? I worked at Mary Claire for two years and then I asked for a raise and a promotion and I was denied. I decided I had outgrown the role and I wanted to pivot. So I decided to look at my job exactly on the opposite side, which I think is a great tactic because I didn't do PR, Mm -hmm. but I knew who was good at PR because they were pitching me. Mm -hmm. So I decided I want to work in PR. I can do that job. And I ended up getting a position at DKNY in 1998, aging myself as a PR coordinator for accessories. And I had Carrie Ellen Phillips on from Bismarck Phillips Communications. And we talked a little bit about PR in those early days Mm -hmm. and the importance of storytelling and ultimately what we now call branding and influencing, but really about the human connection and making sure that that's part of what you're doing. So what did you do in that role? Because your career is storied at DKNY. And I'd love for you to tell everyone and all of our listeners who don't know this story about what you did. And then we will talk about your book too. But let's let's get to that story because I do love it. It's the story that just keeps on giving. I spent 17 total years working for Donna Cameron in PR. Started off at DKMY and really had an entrepreneurial mindset. So really took accessories by storm as a category and then got more responsibility working on Donna Karen Collection. You and I met back in the day when I dressed you for the Frick Gala when we sponsored that. So it was really an education on, first of all, understanding what it means to build a strong brand. Mm -hmm. So the idea of what's on brand for you, we would say that every day. That is not on brand. That person is not on brand. Mm -hmm. Who do we want to work with? Is she on brand? So that pendulum of yes, no was a really important factor in deciding what we do. And, you know, I grew up, I had a normal PR job. I produced the fashion shows. I did award season. I did all the celebrity dressing, made amazing contacts and similar to what Carrie Ellen was saying, is that everything in PR is based on the relationships you have with journalists, with stylists, with talent. 
And sometimes you're able to move mountains because of those relationships versus what you're actually selling. Mm -hmm. And I always say the gold standard of a publicist is the ability to quietly kill a story that you don't want out there. So interesting. Yes, it is a talent. And that goes back to, are your relationships strong enough to go out on a limb and do you a personal favor on behalf of you or your client and actually stop writing about what they were going to write about. So interesting. I've never thought about it like that. Yes. Well, it's something I'm very proud of. I've killed many a story. (laughs) (laughs) And we will Um, never know what those are. You will never know what those are. But it was a normal PR job, and I loved every minute of it. Donna Karen is a visionary creative. She's amazing. Patty Cohen, my mentor, was absolutely visionary. I learned all my leadership skills from her. And our team was there together for 17 years. Like, it was magic. And in 2009, so six years before I left, we were sitting around a marketing meeting thinking about like, oh, we should probably join this thing called Twitter. And I was concerned. As a PR person, I was like, well, Donna Karen's a person. The brand is Donna Karen. Mm -hmm. People are going to assume she's tweeting. Who's writing that copy? Who's responding for her? Yeah. So it was at the height of Gossip Girl. And I was like, well, why do we have to tell anyone who it is? Why can't we create like a fake character, like a la Gossip Girl? Mm-hmm. I'm like, we can call her DKY PR Girl. And it can be through the lens of PR into the behind the scenes of what it's like to have a job in PR in fashion. So everyone was like, that's cool. We pitched it to our legal team. And because I was a senior vice president of global communications at that time, she was like, okay, Lisa, you're the only one who can tweet. And I was like, okay, cool. I don't even know what that means, but sure, <laughs> like I'll research, take this what on. Is Twitter? Yeah, what is Twitter? Google. How do you do it? So as a side hustle to my normal day job, I took on this Twitter account anonymously. No one was allowed to know it was me. It was a secret for two years. What does it take to keep a secret like that? The fashion crowd is the most gossipy crowd in the world. Like how on earth did this happen? Lydia, I swear to God, I don't know. There were obviously a few people internally that knew. Yeah. Everyone held hands and said, we are not telling a soul. But the thing is, it gained traction. Yeah. And it started to get really big. I'll never forget, there was an editor back in the day who wrote Patty, my boss, a letter. I think we were at like 10,000 followers back then. And she was like, I am appalled that a legacy brand like Donna Karen would ever allow this, quote, DKY PR girl to tweet and talk about her celebrity fittings and her lunches at Barney's with editors and like basically like just belittled it down to like the most vapid storytelling you could ever think of. And Patty calls me into her office and she's like, I just want you to see this. And I'm like, oh my God, am I destroying the brand? Like, I love this brand. Like, am I doing something wrong? And she was like, You go with your gut and you keep doing what you're doing. And Lydia, what I knew was to build a community and to build a strong brand, you got to tell a great story. Absolutely. And you need to not sell anything. And that's what I was doing. So we ignored that horrible feedback. And then it ended up garnering over 1.5 million followers across channels. And then finally, two years later, I came out as the person. But at the same time, I found myself mentoring on Twitter and telling people how they could work in PR or telling people how they could break into fashion. And that's what ultimately led to Leave Your Mark. 
when all of this was going on, you're anonymous, right? So what is that like from a confidence standpoint? Because I wonder what it's like to have the ability to say whatever you want, knowing at some point that there will probably be a big reveal. But it's also shielded because there's so many people on social media, that's the way that they live their lives. You know, their account is four numbers and they can say whatever they want. So you have the potential to do good or evil, but you chose obviously to do good and, and well by the community. But what is it like to have that cloak of anonymity and you know no one's going to say? Such a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. So I had a publicist mindset, right? So mm -hmm. I understood what to not say, to get line. in trouble. Yeah. However, to hear my PR girl was a little snarky. Yeah. A little snarky, a little bit ahead of you, slightly aspirational, accessible, but also just like maybe a little cooler. Like I really, and in On Brand, I, I go through how I thought about her brand filter, but I really created what I thought would be like your best girlfriend, but she's going to tell you when those jeans don't look good. Yeah, and she's totally. going to always have the newest, the tip, the thing that you didn't know that you're so excited to hear from her. So with the screen in front of you, you're very right. And we see this online a lot. It's empowering because you can say anything. Mm -hmm. I will never forget there was an award season. I think it was the Oscars where I always hosted red carpet viewing. So I would send out an invitation on behalf of DQI PR Girl and I would do red carpet commentary with E, not hired by E, but my own version yeah. on Twitter. This was when Twilight was huge. Kristen Stewart came on the carpet and I never dropped names. Even when I was talking about celebrity dressing, it was always Celeb X, Stylist X. I never, ever leveraged anyone's name. Mm -hmm. So I said, and she's kind of known for this. I was like, I wish she would wear a smile with her beautiful gown. I didn't say who, mm -hmm. but if you were watching, you, you knew. knew. Oh my God. Thousands of death threats from oh. the Twilight fans. You have <laughs> oh, no idea. The vampires, wolves coming at you from every angle. <laughs> like the scariest thing I've ever seen. I was like, do oh, they know God. who I am? Is my address out there? Like, can someone kill me? Like, oh, I was, it was horrible. So that was a learning. Yes. Okay. To not Life is learned. Go, yes. Yeah. So Beehive, any big community of fan base, you need to stay, you know, Swifties, anyone who has a big fan base, mm -hmm. you need to stay away from. But I would tweet in like bathrooms. Like if I was at an event covering for DKY PR Girl, I wouldn't want anyone over my shoulder yeah, seeing I wondering that, yeah. that I was logged into the account. So I would just like slip away to the bathroom, tweet something, come back out. People would ask our team all the time, like, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Like Bergdorf would come in for a market appointment. They'd be like, you need to tell us. And they're like, no, you need to buy the collection right now. We're not, <laughs> we're not talking about this. Yeah, this is not coming to you. Yeah, so it was empowering. But then when the reveal happened, which was the craziest day of my life, it was scary. Really? Yeah, because the news generated over 230 million media impressions. Wow. Yeah. Had you written Leave Your Mark at this point or you were thinking about writing Leave Your Mark? No, I didn't have any sort of book deal. This was in 2011. I didn't even get a deal until 2013. So what happened in the next two years? So it's revealed that this is who you are. What does that look like internally? I get this question a lot about you do too. People are like, what is it like to be a brand within a brand? You know, mm. I wrote my first book at Christie's. I had sold my second book when I was still full-time at Christie's. It becomes an interesting thing because you're with a company, but you also have your own company building. There are a lot of friction points along the way. And I hear that from people who are doing the same thing. So I would love any tips or thoughts you have for our listeners. Yes, it is. I mean, you nailed it. So I would say, first of all, when I was approached to write the book, 
I said no. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about confidence, I said no because I was not confident I can do it. Mm-hmm. And I was scared that I would be overwhelmed. I was scared no one would read it. And no seemed like a really good answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just felt like that solves all the problems. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Don't yeah. really feel like doing it. Easy no. In On Brand, the new book, I talk about how to rebrand your fear, which is like really identifying, okay, you're scared, clearly. Why are you scared? And like, what are ways to like sort of counteract that? And I decided that if I could figure out a way to pay forward what I learned and really create like a mentorship mm-hmm. for young professionals, then I would be doing a service. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And of course, I wouldn't have that book without having been DKYPR Girl. Mm-hmm. So the next question was, okay, is the company going to support me doing this? The company at the time was owned by LVMH. There were a lot of hoops. You know, I had a great relationship with our general counsel. And I said to her, I spent my entire Twitter career saying Celeb X and Stylist X. I can write this and just say Brand X. Yeah. Because the story of how I built it is mine. Yes. I don't have to say your name at all. I don't have to say the company name. I'm like, or you can embrace it. And that's what we did. It's amazing because I was listening to a podcast with Ali Love recently with the CEO of Barstool Sports. And Ali Love was talking about that friction point with Peloton when she had all of these other things that were coming her way. And she said that she had a similar moment where she sat them down. She's like, listen, Every time someone goes to the Barclays Arena and I get up there with a microphone, if they take my spin class, they're talking about Peloton with their friends. Oh, you should take her class. She's on Peloton. And what we've seen so many companies do since this time, and this was very early years, is adopt this and really embrace it and realize that these ambassadors become not only your brand, but they have something else going on, which makes everybody look back to your brand. And it's a halo effect. And so it's amazing that the company came along for that and continued to support it. But ultimately, you ended up leaving your mark, obviously, no pun intended, but um, but leaving and yes. going out on your own. Yes. And not to spoil the story, because it is how On Brand starts, but I think you're right. I think companies are more comfortable today mm-hmm. with having higher profile employees. Yeah. And the smart ones realize the opportunity. It's like having an in-house celebrity ambassador. But... There can be jealousy. There can be also the idea that like a brand can become too big for the company that it works at. And one of the things that I tried really hard to do in this book is to position it in a way where you're balancing and really thinking through and understanding like everything you're doing to build your personal brand, like what is the after effect Mm -hmm. of that on your actual job that pays your rent? Yes. Super important. So, yes, I did leave the company. It became very clear that it was time for me to go. I also felt like I was doing it with my eyes closed. Yeah. But at the same time, then we go back to, again, this sort of confidence idea, which is when you leave a company after having built this enormous social media presence, which is not mine, right? I built it for the company. Like, I always knew that those were their followers. That's not coming with me. You have a lofty title. You have an expense account, you have a garment allowance, you have all the things. And then you wake up on a Monday in 2016 and you say, wow, I am my own person now. Mm -hmm. I am back to being myself. And what does that actually mean to me today? So in the first book, In Leave Your Mark, I talk about last name syndrome and not being a sufferer of last name syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
because I was Aliza from DKNY or people introduced me as DKNY PR girl. Mm-hmm. But in On Brand now, the whole goal is really building that equity in your own name because you take the skills wherever you go, but what you do today may not be what you do tomorrow. Yeah. I had a friend who said something to me, which I've really thought about a lot for the past year. We were having dinner one night and he said, you know, the interesting thing about working for a company is unless you're the person who stays until they literally are carried out on a stretcher, it will come to an end at some point. He's like, so the way I think about it is as long as you're on someone else's chessboard, you're playing by their rules. Mm. So if you want to live the life you want, you have to build your own chessboard. And I was like, oh my God, that's That's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. And I've thought about it so many times because it is interesting when you work at a company for so long, you believe that everything you've created is because of the company. But oftentimes what you realize is those skills come with you wherever you go. Yes. And ultimately, people forget where you work. People forget where you've worked. What they know is what's happening in front of them and what you tell them. And you talk a lot in On Brand, but also just in general about the importance of owning your story. Can you talk about that with our listeners? Yes. I think people assume that everybody knows what they do Mm -hmm. and the value that they add. And as a former publicist, I can tell you, you have to lead the witness. You have to think about like, what is the headline you want about yourself Mm -hmm. for people to think in their heads? And you have to shape that. So like an easy example would be, or low-hanging fruit, would be like, how many people have their email signature sent from my iPhone? I do not. I'm so glad because we would have to talk about that. Oh, good. Okay. I'm glad I had the right answer there. So, so (laughs) I didn't know what the right answer was. So the right answer would be for the person to actually deliver on a silver platter who they are. Listen to the latest episode of my podcast. Check out my new feature that I wrote in Huffington Post. Whatever you're trying to shape as your narrative, email signature, think about how many emails you send today. It's free real estate for you to market exactly what you want people to know at that time. And it, it of course, deserves, you know, you need to look at it every once in a while. You can't just leave it there and forget it. Mm-hmm. But It's up to us to shape the narrative. That's why it's the first subtitle of this book, because if you're not shaping your narrative and you're waiting for someone to notice how good you are, that's not a strategy. First of all, if you could excuse me for the next 10 minutes as I go change my email (laughs) signature. (laughs) Joe is nodding at me. He's like, I need to change my email signature. Okay, guys, I'll be back in five to 10 minutes and I'll just let Elisa continue. A little sponsor A little sponsor ad. First of all, such a great tip that I'm definitely going to take you up on immediately. But I also have a couple of other questions that I have come to me, it's things I remember thinking through, and I think that our listeners would be absolutely obsessed to hear your answers to these because of what you do. So if someone out there is trying to figure out where to start with their personal brand, what would you say to that? The first thing is answering the question for yourself. What do you want to be known for? And what is the personal brand in service of? Like, what is the goal And by the way, personal branding is not about becoming famous or an influencer, unless that's what someone strives to be. Mm -hmm. What it is about is making sure that people are perceiving you in the way you want to be perceived in any medium. That can be over email. That can be when you log on to a Zoom meeting. That can be when you get on stage. Whatever the case may be, you're making an impression. Mm -hmm. But if you have no idea what people are taking away from that impression, like, you're at a disadvantage. So understanding your purpose of like why you want to sort of raise your profile. And easy examples for people who might be listening, 
would be like, you want to get promoted or you want to be thought of as a thought leader in your industry so you can be asked to speak at conferences. There is there's a lot of ways to want to raise your profile that have nothing to do with, you know, writing a book, for example. So this is really for anyone. That's why OnBrand doesn't have a target audience because I don't care if you're a corporate employee who has been there for years or you're just starting out or you're someone who's a student. It doesn't matter. Everyone has aspirations greater than where they are today. There are so many people who would say that numbers on social media are the only thing that counts, especially to the younger audience these days. What do you say to people who are obsessed with the follower count? Oh, it is not about... <laughs> she just about, rolled her eyes. You it, guys can't see her. It is not... First of all, so many people have fake followers. That's number one. Number two, it is about having the right followers. Right. So if you have 300 followers and you have 300 people who are listening to your advice or your recommendations or what to buy, you are influencing those 300 people. Mm -hmm. It's not about quantity. It's really about understanding what you're trying to put out in the world and making sure that the people who are catching that are getting what they want to from your feed. So for example, like a lot of my content, as you know, is very service oriented, mm -hmm. right? So I am trying to educate or inspire or motivate people mm -hmm. in whatever it is they do. I don't care if I have a million followers or 18,000 followers. I want people who are engaged with the content and want to be there because they appreciate what I'm putting out into the world. So I don't think follower count matters at all. It's much harder to grow an organic following today. The algorithms are working against you. What everyone should be focusing on is owning their 100% share of voice on their website or their portfolio. That is where you can present in the way you want to without the interference of an algorithm. Social media accounts, you're renting your audience. So interesting. I've never thought of it like that, but it's a great point. Yeah, if like Instagram disappeared tomorrow, is your brand gone? Yeah. So if you're not collecting email addresses, if you don't have a newsletter, if you're not bringing people into your actual ecosystem that you own, social media is fake. You left Donna Karen after 17 years. You wrote your first book. You've written your second book. But I've known you for a number of years now. And there were times when you went back to companies. Yes. And yet you leave the companies to do your own thing again. And I can say as someone who's sort of a new entrepreneur, having left my full-time role in the past year, there's so many days where I wake up and pinch myself, this is my life. Tell me about what it takes to be an entrepreneur. What are you doing day after day? Give the listeners out there who want to be entrepreneurs, starting their own company, building their community, some inspiration and some things to think about. Well, I will say that when I first left Donna Karen and I decided to consult, I tried it for 10 months and I sucked at it. Absolutely sucked at it. I was so good at keeping score for myself and really analyzing like, what am I doing is anything amounting to anything? Do I have clients? No. Can I get clients? Not the ones I want. <laughs> um, so I actually wrote a really great, very transparent article for Forbes, which was titled, How You Know You're Not Meant to Be an Entrepreneur. Interesting. And I gave myself permission to fail and say it in publicly. Forbes. <laughs> say it pub publicly because that permission allowed me to say like, you know what? It's okay that I'm not good at this. Mm -hmm. Maybe I meant to be back in house. So that's when I went back in house for a couple of years. But then I get very bored creatively. 
So I left. I was at Alice and Olivia for two and a half years. And then in 2019, I was like, I need to do something creative. Maybe I'll start a podcast. And that's when I started the Leave Your Mark podcast because it was easy. It was like an extension of the book. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to write another book. And it seemed like a great way to extend the brand of Leave Your Mark while doing something for myself. Except that I didn't realize that also meant I needed to consult again because fun fact, you don't make money when you're podcasting in the beginning. So then I had to take a deep dive and think, okay, why did I fail the first time? Mm-hmm. What would I do differently now? And I I really took pen to paper and I really realized that I like being part of teams. Mm-hmm. I don't like running around the city by myself. I don't like quote unquote consulting in the sense of like, I give you a strategy and then you walk off and you execute it. Mm-hmm. So I came up with this concept of like rent a CMO. So I layer into small and mid-sized teams and I kind of mentor the team. This way I can give sort of senior leadership Mm -hmm. and the team can execute, but they also have like a boss. So a lot of companies don't have a CMO, Mm -hmm. but they have like a marketing manager who doesn't really have a boss that they can learn from. So brand building for businesses, but now with on brand, brand building for individuals. So I'm sort of taking everything that I do for businesses and applying it to people. So on my site, if you're a business, you go one way. If you're an individual, you go another way. Well, all I can say is this has been an illuminating conversation. I, as I've told you all before, well, you're the best host. Emailing, I'll be updating my email address immediately now that I've learned that important tip. But I know that there are so many more in your amazing book, and I cannot wait for everyone to pick this up. Tell us when it publishes. Tell us everything about where we can find you, where we can support you, where we can learn from you. Thank you, Lydia. So the book is called On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception. Comes out April 18th. It's available wherever you buy books or on alizalek.com. And I structured the book so it's like I'm holding your hand and there's these mental gymnastics exercises throughout. So you're actually doing the work of building your brand as you're reading the book. And then if you need more help, you can go to alizalick.com and you can find me. I'm on social, anywhere you're on social. Make sure to sign up for her newsletter. I get it. I love it. I pour Thank through you. it. I really Thank do. You. You're an excellent writer. You have such amazing tips and such great insight on so many things, especially with what's going on in the world and thank you. how to cut through all the noise and really create a personal brand that people are going to remember. Alisa, thank you for being here. I'd like to thank Joe, my amazing producer, for ensuring that everything always goes perfectly in thank this fabulous you, booth. Thank you to Rockefeller Center for this beautiful newsstand studio booth that I am lucky enough to podcast from. And I would like to just leave our listeners with this. What are you going to do to shape the narrative of your story and create a personal brand that you can be proud of from now until the time you decide to get off social media? DM me, DM Aliza, keep us updated on what you're doing. Feel free to stop by the podcast booth anytime you can in One Rock Plaza. My name is Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. Until next week, 